let us come back to the topic of the military in the national army and desertions irrespective how we parse the causes of desertions and the causes are many a variety of personal and psychological factors but they boil down to three basic factors breakdown of discipline deficient regimental cohesiveness which may be because of fresh recruits who have not been drilled long enough into the regimental order or a new commanding officer who has not had the time to build a close association and rapport to inspire trust among the men and lack or loss of motivation if one regards the aine desertions carefully behind all myriad motives it was basically one or a combination of these uh, three factors at play this is line from colonel prem sagal's memoirs which uh, tiwari quotes that part of the reason that some muslim soldiers may have been inclined to desert was on account of turkey's alignment along the anti axis powers turkey's alignment alongside the anti axis powers has had a very adverse effect on certain muslim officers in spite of our efforts to explain to them the circumstances under which turkey has been forced to join the war the officers feel that by fighting against powers that are allied with the turks they are being disloyal to islam which side turkey would join may have been playing on the minds of some muslim soldiers but that by itself is unlikely to have been a big factor since turkey entered the war only in february 1945 and by july 1944 ina was already in retreat on all the fronts impal burma koima the morale of the ina men was rock bottom by then and they saw desertions in droves moreover it is important to know that many of the soldiers of ina did not in the first place join ina out of reasons of patriotism or the appeal of the call of freedom fact is that a great many pwds had joined simply to escape the hardships and privations of captivity or because they had been coerced in some manner threatened with dire straits or in cases where regimental loyalty was weak it is suggested that some may have even joined for self advancement as they got promoted several ranks in rank but in reality there were fewer committed volunteers who had joined for a genuine zeal uh, for the armed struggle for independence many did join purely out of patriotic motives others who were inspired by the persona and uh, leadership of course but it cannot be said with certainty if they comprise the majority a large number of officers vcos you know viceroy's commission officers and other ranks actually remained loyal to their oath and even suffered horrible consequences sent to work on the siam burma railway which came to be known as death railway many were transported to malaya and left to die without food or resources abandoned to harsh tropical weather and disease whether the japanese shot them or ate them as some horrifying tales narrate and a word of caution is to here british accounts greatly exaggerated these adding phony unverifiable details to increase shock value with certain intention which however may not be true but refusing to renege on their oath to the king and not joining ina was a tough choice which uh, the more seasoned and steadfast 
uh, soldiers seem to have stuck to. In particular, those uh, from regiments where officers and VCOs had uh, remained together over longer time, keeping the regimental bond intact. And it was not that the Japanese did not realize this. Therefore, resistant officers and VCOs were put in an officer's separation camp to talk them into joining with the hope that other ranks would follow. In cases where the Indian officers and VCOs remained steady, the rank and file followed their example, no matter what fate it brought them. And this number was not insignificant, it was almost around 11,000 or so. As I explained earlier, often this had more to do with the character of a soldier and the nature of the army itself than strictly loyalty to the British. It was to an extent also result of uncertainty over the outcome of the war itself. They did not really believe Japan would win it. After taking the oath of allegiance, men would not be inclined to frequently reappraise their commitment to their army against personal considerations at each new prospect, unless forced in a situation to do so, which is what happened in case of Segal, Shanavas, and Helong. The Baloch regiment, which was Prem Segal's regiment, was comprised of Punjabi Muslims, Pathans and Dogras. Of these, Punjabi Muslims had a strong loyalty to the British and were reluctant to join. So, though the Dogras and Pathans wanted to join, they would not because they did not want to leave their Punjabi Muslim brothers behind. So, regimental loyalty is a very important factor in preserving esprit de corps of a military force. This feeling is relatively weak in fresh recruits. Fresh recruits learn to school their emotions over time, tempered through strict discipline until this becomes second nature, where emotions do not interfere with set action. Therefore, military is also a dharm, a unique mental and physical makeup, and a community in itself. In the Sikh mutiny of June 1984, it was found in the course of investigations that almost all the deserters were raw recruits. Subsequently, a greater proportion of the mutineers were pardoned after serving minor sentences, though not taken back in service. Only a few faced harsh sentences and a handful were also reinstated. The British Indian Army in World War II was literally a freshman army owing to the manifold increase in its numbers from 189,000 in the pre-war period to 2.3 million during the war. From December 1932 to May 1941, the number of Indian officers passing out of IMA was 524 and this number had gone up to 9,540 by the end of the war because training for officers was reduced from two and a half years to a six months term of emergency commission. For men, this period was even shorter. Some of them found themselves thrust into the battle scene after barely a couple of months long training. They were little more than peasants in uniform, still ruled by their prejudices and passions. There was a lot of regimental displacement due to reshuffling, Officers and men transferred to and from different regiments just before deployment, which eroded their regimental bond. There was discrimination and 
ill feeling between British and Indian officers. The mass surrender of British and Indian officers had been a bewildering experience for the men and for the Indian officers, as Shahnawaz recounted later, a humiliating feeling uh, being handed over like cattle to the Japanese. Captain Shahnawaz had barely five to six years military experience behind him and Captain Prem Kumar Sagar had just two. Lieutenant Gurbat Singh Dillon had risen from the ranks and had barely two years experience as an officer, which was marked with resentment on account of discrimination and hostility from British officers. He complained about despondence on account of lack of discipline and flagging morale among the ranks. Shanavas had been transferred to 14th Punjab just before the war. They were the first uh, three of the two dozen picked for court-martial proceedings. There being Hindu-Muslim Sikh was purely coincidental. And Congress touted them as mascots of their favorite Hindu-Muslim Bhaichara front. This was not on account of any selection policy of INA, which had the constraint of availability and ability. A somewhat similar situation had prevailed in the 5th Light Infantry, which mutinied in 1915 in uh, Singapore, an example which Tiwari has also cited. They had a weak and discordant leadership at the level of officers and two hostile factions within the ranks. And there were also other reasons for discontent. Suspicion was rife. Such a unit will see desertions at the very first occasion. It is not so much the immediate reasons behind mutiny, which in this case was said to be rumors of being sent to Europe to fight the Ottoman Empire against their Muslim co-religionists, but an environment where such personal motives come in play, and that is breach of discipline. A contrasting case was in the Mesopotamian theatre, especially Gelibolu and North Africa during World War I where the Turks met British expeditionary forces consisting of mainly Muslim Indian soldiers, hardened combat-ready soldiers who fought stoutly against them and in spite of a fatwa being in place for an Ottoman global jihad. As a matter of fact, the Turkish president Ataturk was very bitter on this account. He had complained about it to uh, Mohammed Iqbal Shehdai during the latter's visit to Turkey after World War II. During the war, Indian POWs from British colonies, a majority of whom were Muslims, were moved to Winfstock camp near Berlin. It was known as Halbmond Lager or the Half Moon Camp, a befitting name because it was a camp exclusively for Muslims. The Ottoman Sultan was keen to recruit the Muslims from the POWs to fight for the cause of Islam, which he requested of his German allies. Following this, a variety of propaganda measures were carried out in the camp to entice Muslims to join the Turks and wage jihad against Britain and France. It was known as the Jihad Experiment, carried out under Max von Oppenheim, a special paper which spread anti-British sentiments was published in Urdu as well as in Hindustani, titled Hindustan, and widely distributed among the POWs in Inderlagar or the camp of Indians, which had mostly Muslims, but also some 80 odd number of Sikhs and Hindus. A mosque was built in a record time of about five weeks and 
religious activities were promoted to the preference of Muslims. A cleric by name Sheikh Salih al-Sharif mentored the Muslim soldiers. Around 2000 Muslims had joined, but among South Asian Muslims, there were only a handful of Pashtuns, a couple of dozen. Not a single Indian Muslim wanted to fight for the German Ottoman allies. And it is not that these soldiers were British loyalists, since those with strong pro-Britain leanings had already been segregated and sent to a different camp. So it is important to look at facts, however, in consideration of all the facts related to a matter in order to get a clear and unbiased picture. Sarvesh Tiwari quotes some of the statements of the officers during the INA trials to make a case that they joined for the sake of Islam and with the hidden motive of sabotaging the effort. Firstly, it must be said that these statements cannot be taken on their content, instead on the intention behind which was to defend themselves against the charge of renouncing their oath to the king and waging war against the king. They had to prove that they had joined out of coercion or some other ulterior motive rather than for the independence of India or moved by Subhash Bose's mission because that would have confirmed the charges. And since they were categorized for prosecution as blacks, which meant that at the initial interrogation they would have admitted being fervently committed to Bose's cause and had to be dealt with severely rather than the whites and greys who said they joined due to other less honorable reasons. The blacks were faced with extremely harsh punitive action and their change statements too were not enough to save them. It's a different thing that later the sentences had to be dropped because of an unprecedented wave of popular public reaction in their support. So for defense during the court procedures, they gave legally tutored statements. In an interview with Asaf Ali, one of the lead counsels of the defense committee, uh, with a former POW, Captain Hari Badwar of 3rd Cavalry, who had not joined INA, had asked whether from the facts as known, the INA soldiers should not champion INA. And Asaf Ali had replied that they dare not take that line, as they would lose much ground in the country. He believed that even if congressmen were in power, it would have no hesitation in removing all INA from the services and that Congress would not hesitate to put INA leaders on trial when they came to power. So it is not surprising that INA soldiers gave calculated and ambiguous statements. Tiwari quotes Shanawaz's words from his autobiography to show that his loyalty was questionable because he said that he had joined INA so that he could wreck it from inside. This is however not the complete statement. What he had said was to sabotage and wreck it from within the moment we felt that it would submit to Japanese exploitation. In his trial, he had claimed this repeatedly that he tried hard to keep the rank and file out of INA and to persuade Mohan Singh to disband INA. He claimed that personally I wished to get out of the INA, but I had committed myself too far and could not retrace my steps and that he set about to find such men for the INA as would be willing to fight the Japs if they were dishonest with us. He elaborated uh, stating that I also realized that if on going into India 
which was probable due to poor British defences. The Japs were dishonest. I would be much more useful to my country with a rifle in hand in India than as a POW in Malaya. Now, how would a few INA soldiers with rifles in their hands prevent the Japanese if they did deceptively turn against India and uh, Indians? To anyone, this would sound bizarre. Unless one understands, it is stated in the context of the charges against him. Even Prem Sagar gave similar and equally weird reasons. He said, if sincere and patriotic officers kept out of it, meaning INA, it would be quite easy for the Japanese to exploit their army. He explained, I finally made up my mind to join the Indian National Army because I felt that the Japanese were absolutely determined to go to India and if they were accompanied by a really strong INA, the Japanese would not be permitted to commit the same atrocities as they had committed in Malaya and other countries in East Asia and also if they did not honour their pledges regarding Indian independence, a well-armed and organised INA would be in a position to put up an armed opposition against them. So, this appears to have been the standard uh, line of defence. And Shah Nawaz never said that he joined for the interest of Islam, as Tiwari claims. He did initially get together a group of Muslim soldiers to discuss what their stand should be to protect themselves as a community. But this was the case with all communities. Muslims stuck with Muslims, Sikhs stuck with Sikhs and Gurkhas with uh, Gurkhas. They considered their communal interests. They resisted together the attempts to make them join and in the end made the decision to join also together. Most importantly, these moves and statements were made in the context of the time before the formation of the first INA, which the POWs regarded with utmost suspicion and were still weighing their personal situation options and opportunities, which is what happened in that situation which we heard about earlier in the Bidadari camp. But Shanavas makes it clear that he joined ultimately only because he decided to fight for his country. And this was a solemn pledge the group of Indian officers took after dwelling on the prospect for long. As they described, going round and round the question until at last, Setting an evening aside for the purpose, we met and examined the business methodically, item by item, point by point. R.A. Marshad testified at Prem Sagal's trial that we discussed all the pros and cons. We unanimously decided that under the circumstances, we all owed our allegiance to our country, meaning India. All the officers who faced trial were charged with waging war against the king. Shanavas was charged on an additional count for the murder of an INA soldier for deserting INA. His name was Sepoy Mohammad Hussain and Shanavas ordered his execution. Dillo and Saigal also faced charges of murder for the execution of four deserters, all Hindus, Hari Singh, Duli Chand, Daryo Singh and Dharam Singh. But the interesting thing about Mohammed Hussain's execution is that the order was carried out by a Muslim battalion commander by name Khazin Shah. He got a Sikh and a Tamilian and a petty orderly by name Jagri Ram to fire at Hussain. When Jagri Ram protested saying that he wasn't up to the task, 
he got another soldier to hold the rifle over Jagrinam's shoulder, curl his finger around the tri uh, trigger and shoot at Hussain. So great was his contempt for the deserter. So how can you pick out Muslim names, twist facts and say that they were not loyal? There can be no doubt whatsoever that Shah Nawaz gave himself completely to the cause of India's freedom. And this is not just in his own words, but also testified by some others who spoke of his devotion towards Bose and Indian National Army. It is really shameful to smear his name out of prejudice, whereas there were so many who had deserted INA, Hindu, Muslim, as well as Sikhs, Sepoys, as well as officers. There was uh, Major Garwal in Gandhi Brigade. He just walked over to the British side. He was second in command to Inayat Jan Kayani, who was Zaman Kayani's cousin and who fought in the end. British intelligence reports testify that Inayat Kayani held off the British Indian Army doubtily till the very end in a guerrilla war at a place called Palel Tamu. Many surrendered because they were simply in a bad shape without food, provisions or prospects of winning. The supply lines were cut off after the Japanese withdrew. Many soldiers did not have shoes. Many were stricken with disease and they had no medicines. The declassified files suggest that a large number of INA soldiers were actually disgruntled, disillusioned and disheartened and they did not want to fight a losing battle. Yet so many fought on right till the end or till their ends, irrespective of religion. It is unforgivable to question their commitment, picking out names on the basis of religious identity. Tiwari also mentions Captain Abdul Rashid's statement that his predominant objective in joining the INA was to serve the interests of Islam and safeguard the Indian Muslims from getting dominated by the Hindus and Sikhs of INA. What Tiwari doesn't tell you is that his lawyer was from the Muslim League. Initially, Muslim League stayed aloof uh, from the INA trials because they had unambiguously supported the British in the World War. But when they saw that Congress had engaged a bevy of lawyers to defend the accused INA soldiers, among them several Muslims, and coming across as the representatives of Indian Hindus and Muslims, they did not want to lose their relevance and uh, the opportunity to present themselves as representatives of the Muslims. So they also jumped on the uh, bandwagon. They provided their own defense committee to one of the accused and this man was Captain Abdul Rashid. So the arguments put forth for his defense are in consonance with the Muslim League's aims. Only that they are even more absurd than the other INA men, which said that he joined INA to thwart the Hindu conspiracy of ruling whole India at the exclusion of Muslims with the help of Japanese. After sentencing, uh, Muslim League claimed that Rashid had been a victim of religious discrimination. Tiwari also mentions the cases of Habibur Rahman and Mohammad Zaman Kiani who went to Pakistan in 1947 and were involved in conducting the Kabaili raids into Kashmir. But in both cases, their joining Pakistan could not possibly be held against them. They were Muslims, perhaps in terms of insecurity, their 
communal instincts they went where they thought they belonged there was no ina that time and they had no prospects in the army in the two years after uh, subhash bose's death the communal situation in india had turned very vicious in the post world war 2 period poised before an imminent division of the indian army on grounds of religion choosing between india and pakistan was regarded as an honorable choice for the military men when these men went to pakistan they had pakistan's interests in mind why wouldn't they is it expected that they would belong to pakistan and pitch for india is that a realistic expectation then habibur rahman belonged to bhimber he had a personal image at stake to have bhimber as part of pakistan and kiani had joined at the time of the first time Uh, before subhash took charge he was a confidant of mohan singh but neither men had betrayed ina or subhash bose and by all accounts fought valiantly so what exactly is tiwari trying to say that muslims should not have been taken into ina or that they should not have been appointed to high posts according to their experience and qualification what exactly does he have a problem with would he much rather that indian muslims fought against us on the side of the british what foolishness and is he sure that desertions would not have happened uh, in an all hindu army or that they would have fought better when muslims were still uh, at that time part of our country and formed a significant portion of the army why wouldn't willing men be taken into ina and as if bose was greatly spoiled for choice he only had those set of men to draw from that were there when it comes to islam caution is well in place but prejudice doesn't help get anywhere realistically speaking only clear sightedness does to illustrate let me draw an example from history many times i have seen rajputs being reviled for having served loyally under the moguls when their co-religionists or say their civilization was on the other side but in reality such clear lines never really existed in the past and when such clear delineations did emerge in an enduring manner over time then rulers or military commanders had the opportunity to assess on which side they stood and did sometimes switch allegiance but measured against short term developments and immediate motives such switching of sides can only count as desertion now why they took the decision to serve at all in muslim armies under muslim rulers also had definite causes this is related to the design of islamic rule itself in india although in islam the mushrikan or idolaters are not entitled to thimma that is the status of protected citizens of an islamic state however seeing the impossibility of conquering a subcontinent armed to the teeth the hanifi law was applied in india whereby hindus were treated as the people of the book generally christians and jews who became entitled to protection by payment of jizya the conditions that it imposed were as we know highly humiliating they were not allowed to wear rich robes ride in palanquins be horse pawn 
make music or take out processions, use a chhatri, basically anything that appeared defiant of the supremacy of Islam and Muslims. And most importantly, not allowed to bear arms. The only way they could continue to be armed was by serving in Muslim armies, a recourse open to dhimmis, and had the added advantage of exemption from jizya. Christians and Jews also served in Islamic armies and so did Hindus. The alternative was to rush in blindly to war and be annihilated, which also would be futile because militarily at that time they were weaker. At least they needed time to regroup, which Islamic armies did not allow. One defeat meant extermination and massacre of your entire country. There were many who carried on armed rebellions as fell from the margins of the cities. But when caught, they met with horrifically cruel fate. And in the end, their struggle was also fruitless because it did not bring long-term advantages. We hear about these rebels or lawless people in Islamic accounts. But clearly, they were not an effective force. Their societies also suffered because they dwelt outside the bounds of society and law, like for example the dacoits of British India. Whereas the Hindu groups that decided to serve the Islamic state, even in humiliating conditions, could bargain for advantages, though limited but uh, long term, and had greater success in preserving their social and religious values and even grow until they were in a situation to effect an overthrow of foreign yoke. But in the interim, it minimized conflict and losses and devastation and to put off bloody face-offs till the time it was inevitable. And when it came to that point, there were do-or-die fights. On occasions, they offered resistance to attacks of iconoclasts, like in case of temple destruction in Kashi in Aurangzeb's time, which saw gritty resistance by local Rajputs at every step inch by inch at each household. Timur Lane faced similar resistance from Hindus in Delhi. This was possible only because they were armed. All this is documented. And it was not just Rajputs. Many other Hindu communities and clans of all castes made this choice. Had they not done so, they would have been demilitarized and disarmed within a couple of decades which would have had a devastating effect on the capacity of the Hindus to resist. It was a payoff to keep their Kshatratham alive, continuing to bear arms even if in service of the Islamic State. Martial character can get lost within a single generation. How rapidly Hindus as a population were disarmed and weakened in constitution within five decades of the 1857 rebellion is clearly seen. This is the reason there was this talk among Hindu leaders of militarization of Hindus to withstand Muslim aggression. Another example is of the Marathas. Most of the Maratha Sardars had been serving in Muslim armies of the Deccan. And even at the time when Maharaj Shivaji was building his resistance against the Mughal Empire and other Muslim powers, many Sardars continued to serve these Islamic states even though beckoned to fulfill a larger calling of Hindu dharma, They did not instantly cross over to the other side. That doesn't mean they were traitors to Hinduism. 
they did just what soldiers would do by natural calling. This is the reason Shahji Bhosle was against Shivaji's defiance of the Bijapur Sultanate because he simply saw it as waywardness. Obviously, he could not grasp the vision and purpose that his great son was born to fulfill. Shivaji's band of men were initially seen as traitors. He was known as a mountain rat. The rallying around this larger purpose happened over time. The outrage uh, that ultimately raised the indignance of the Maratha people to that level was the cruel execution of Chhatrapati Shambhaji. Even later, up till the time of Chhatrapati Rajaram and even Maharani Tarabai, we find them persuading the Maratha Sardars to join their cause. Eventually, they did. But the reason Marathas could put up a resolute struggle and fight back in spite of heavy odds was because they were seasoned soldiers. There was this discussion thread sometime back on Twitter where someone had claimed that the Marathas were a poor, starving, exploited lot of peasants who fought the mighty Mughals, a very romantic version of the rise of the Maratha people as half-wit subalterns fighting their oppressors. But this view is erroneous. On the contrary, they were men with generations of soldiering uh, tradition. A subaltern army can never put up this kind of determined resistance, no matter how great and intense the force of their collective grows. And neither were they underfed. An army cannot fight without food on just inspiration. Marathas were in fact brilliant in resourcefulness and controlled sufficient logistical means to sustain the fight. Armies organized food if required through coercive means at times. And neither did Maharana Pratap live on Ghaski Roti. He had considerable wherewithal to carry on a long-term struggle. They were not romantic fools. And if it comes to that point, a commander will negotiate a surrender instead of trying to make a wretched lot of men fight. This is what happened in case of INA when their supply line ceased, as we shall see. So, these were the compromises through which Hindus in the past preserved the martial resources of their nation. And it is important to have faith on the wisdom of our ancestors, how they negotiated these extremely difficult times. This is the reason we survived, whereas so many cultures were obliterated by the marauding Abrahamic hordes. It is something to learn from instead of using these instances to pick at the communities and derogatorily refer to past personalities like they do in case of the conciliatory approach adopted at times by the Rajput rulers or Shivaji in the initial period of building his power or Guru Gobind Singh. They were responsible for the welfare and survival of their people and preservation of their culture. But then, why did not these men in Muslim armies sabotage it from within, one may ask. This is on account of the principle of military which I talked about. It is a kind of bind that military men operate in. You break it and you are no longer a soldier. If one began to condone such breach of loyalty in the military, it could happen for every other reason tomorrow by anyone. One cannot raise an army of deserters. 
Another way of saying it would be deserters are no good for any army. Savarkar makes it clear in the following words among his exhortations to Hindus when he was asking them to join the armed forces. One point, however, must be noted in this connection as emphatically as possible in our own interest that those Hindus who join the Indian red, the British forces should be perfectly amenable and obedient to the military discipline and order which may prevail there provided always that the latter do not deliberately aim to humiliate Hindu honor. How about vice versa? Did Muslims serve loyally under Hindu rulers? Now there were some desertions and treacherous acts by Muslims in 1947 in the Jammu and Kashmir state forces. But it is important to understand that it was an extremely volatile and unstable political situation that time in a country in the process of being partitioned on religious uh, grounds. Maharaj Hari Singh's army was fractured along the lines of religion and some battalions of the state forces had already revolted. The British commanders of these uh, Jammu and Kashmir regiments had also rebelled against the king and encouraged the Muslims to rebel. There was confusion on what constituted their state or country. But less than two decades later, in the same Jammu and Kashmir region, a Muslim majority battalion of Jammu and Kashmir posted at a strategic location served unflinchingly in the 1965 Indo-Pakistan war and in all wars subsequently with Pakistan. Muslim personnel have served with unswerving loyalty. There were also desertions of Muslims from the Indian Army after Indian Army entered the Muslim Principality of Hyderabad of Deccan in September 1948. But as already said, during the Hyderabad action, the Indian Army was in the process of division between India and Pakistan on grounds of religion. As Colonel Anil Athale has said, to call these acts as desertion would label the entire Pakistani army as deserters. It is akin to complaining about Muslims joining Pakistan. Take for example, Air Marshal Latif, Idris Hassan Latif who was Chief of Air Staff, Indian Air Force. He served in the same squadron as Asghar Khan, who joined Pakistan and went on to become the Commander-in-Chief of the Pakistan Air Force. Incidentally, Asghar Khan was strongly opposed to hostilities with India and tried to obstruct the Indo-Pakistan War of 1965 by constantly vetoing decisions on Operation Gibraltar. He was dismissed from service because of this. An interesting side fact, Askar Khan's brother, Captain Aslam Khan was in the Jammu and Kashmir forces and during partition, he joined Pakistan army. In November 1947, along with Major W.A. Brown of Gilgit Scouts, he played a leading role in inciting the rebellion against the Maharaja and also the so-called tribal rebels, which ultimately led to the control of Gilgit Baltistan by Pakistan. Now, Askar and Aslam belonged to the Afridi Pashtun tribes, who were settlers and uh, not Kashmiris. They had served in the Maharaja's forces for almost a century, but had deserted en bloc during the Indo-Pakistan War of 1947 and 48. 
they justified it by cooking up a tale of a supposed massacre by the Maharaja's troops of their people in 1947, of which there isn't the faintest trace of an evidence except the testimony of one Ved Bhaseen that has never been scrutinized. He was the Tista of those days. But a strong motive they did have. Their father, Brigadier Rehmatullah Khan, also retired from uh, Jammu and Kashmir forces, was an active member of the Muslim League. And he had been put under arrest, regarded as an enemy agent by the Maharaja, when arms had been recovered from his associates. So, there were a strange set of motivations and confused loyalties at work in that time which cannot be used for building an assessment for the normal course of things. Now, there were reports of many ex-INA soldiers in Pakistan being actively involved in militant Muslim organizations and some reports suggested that many incidents of organized violence against civilians during the bloodletting of partition were committed by these ex-INA men. As already discussed, these men were not really professional soldiers, but mostly voluntary wartime recruits who had not shed their social and religious biases. Neither had many of them joined INA for some principle, but due to circumstance. And the compulsion of circumstance was just the same on both sides, for those joining INA as also for those recruiting them. Neither had a choice. So, how is this a comment on INA's? policy. Ex-INA men were not re-inducted in the regular army and having no future otherwise would have sought to be rehabilitated through their political or religious organizations. Why INA men specifically were found to have been involved in killings of unarmed and innocent civilians during partition holocaust is that the Muslim League had this as definite plan for them. And for this, you have to understand Punjab politics in those days. Over 27% of the emergency recruits during World War II were supplied by Punjab, a figure of about 8 lakh able-bodied unemployed men, which was also a significant chunk of the electorate. The nationalist Punjab Unionist Party had this insight and had been developing a plan of canal colonies to employ these men, but uh, the abrupt end of uh, the war took them by surprise and Muslim League looking to exploit the post for economic slump in Punjab tipped them to the post, moving in quickly to offer an instant solution to the economic dislocation suffered by Punjab villagers by recruiting these ex-INA men in their ranks for the cause of Pakistan. So, they were hired as goons by Muslim League to perpetrate violence on non-Muslims in a premeditated way along the pattern of direct action day. They were not acting spontaneously. For this reason, ex-INA officers were engaged by Pakistani army to recruit these men as raiders for the operation in Kashmir, which was conducted outside the normal chain of command of the army just like uh, Pakistani terrorist camps of today. So, this had no intrinsic correlation with the INA chapter, rather with the question of discipline itself 
and the violation of a fundament of the military. Once breach of discipline in ranks is countenanced and condoned, a soldier is no better than an armed brigand. This is the admission of a Pakistani general. Pakistan learnt it the hard way. According to their own records, use of ex-INA soldiers for 1947-48 Kashmir operations had far-reaching and detrimental impact on the discipline of Pakistani army. Three years later, several officers were arrested for the conspiracy to overthrow the civilian government. It came to be known as the Rawalpindi Conspiracy, the first in a series of coups that marked Pakistan's short history. Almost all of these officers were found to have participated in the Kashmir operations. This illustrates somewhat why ex-INA men were not recruited in the army, neither of India nor Pakistan. Reason is that irrespective of the motive of their fight, they were by definition deserters. When they fought their former colleagues at the Indian border, they were basically fighting their own former uh, comrades. That is a line that cannot be crossed in the military, no matter how lofty the supposed principle on which the soldiers may have acted. The principle of the military is unambiguous allegiance and unquestioning obedience to the force they have committed themselves to and not working against the unit at any cost. Because then anyone can start deserting on any personal principle. And that's why desertions are usually very thoroughly investigated, inquiring into all possible reasons and the people involved directly or indirectly. INA cannot be called an army of deserters, but definitely of the nature of a rebel force. Many in INA believe that as soon as they made contact with their Indian army colleagues, they would simply cross over and join them. But this, this did not happen. Both sides dropped leaflets, beckoning the soldiers from the other side to join their cause. INA could not advance deep enough to drop these behind the British lines. But even if they did, it was not very likely that it would have brought out the response uh, that they hoped. The British Indian Army units fought very well against INA and the Indian soldiers who were fighting INA considered them as traitors who lacked the metal to fight. There were several cases where INA soldiers were shot by Indian Army soldiers rather than being allowed to surrender. This problem was apparently so significant that British command had to issue a special order to Indian soldiers to prohibit the practice. This strong antipathy against the INA soldiers as a treacherous and unprincipled lot was primarily because of British propaganda that we talked about earlier. Accepting those who deserted the army back in service would result in grave compromise of discipline because it would lend respectability to acts of desertion. Leniency in treatment of acts of desertion is as good as encouraging it. Senior armed forces officers, Lieutenant General Sri Nagesh, Major General J. N. Chaudhary and P. V. R. Rao of Defence Ministry were unanimous in their opinion that INA personnel should not be reinstated in the army. Giving them pension also would have been demoralizing for armed forces personnel because 
that would be akin to rewarding desertion and would equate them with soldiers who had uh, served their army honestly. British propaganda had convinced them that by fighting on the British side, they were serving their nation. And the Indian political leadership also told them the same. But what they saw was a wave of support for the INA personnel, hailing them as patriots, which induced confusion in the sense of loyalty within Indian army ranks as to who they owed it to. This could be damaging. They could at most uh, have been given a freedom fighters allowance, but we all know the politics behind that, why it did not happen. It was there in the Congress recommendations, but Nehru did not implement it because apparently the British frowned at the prospect. So, how successful was the Indian National Army? Clearly, INA was not a force that could stand on its own. It remained an auxiliary force, dependent on the Japanese forces to break the British lines. Bose was keen that they should have received more intense combat training, but the Japanese were mostly interested in using them as sleuthing and sabotage units. They were not adequately equipped or trained for combat, but they did see combat at two or three fronts. Uh, contemporary British accounts disparagingly refer to these engagements, but later accounts uh, composed after perusing military records show that apparently INA did see intense action in some sectors and continued to hold out uh, against heavy odds, often in pitiable condition out of a stubbornness that can only uh, be from firm commitment to a cause. It was clear from the very beginning that they were operating under the greatest constraints. But in the end, they were done in by the Japanese, who refused to provide the slightest help in any way once they were themselves on withdrawal mode. In one case, a Gurkha ex-Havildar commanding an INA platoon was invited to surrender by Indian Army. He replied back, scribbled on the back of uh, one of these leaflets, Gentlemen, I do not come, and fought on until he was killed. Bose's entire concentration towards the end had been to somehow provide for his men, rallying the Southeast Asian community to produce basics like shoes and clothes for the men. He did not have the resources of a state to uh, support the war effort. The supply lines had uh, crumbled and the men were left hanging on a bare thread. In the end, they surrendered because they simply did not have the means to sustain the operations. A majority of the ranks were raw recruits and their officers did not have experience much beyond leading a battalion of commanding higher formations. But the most important factor behind the desertions was differential levels of motivation. I talked about this in the beginning that the ideal of patriotism evokes varying levels of commitment among men and can also be different for different individuals. This was the reason that some INA men endured the harshest conditions to continue fighting till the end. There are some heartbreaking accounts of men laid up with disease or disability saying that if they could just haul themselves up to hold a gun, they would still fight. 
On the other hand, there were those who buckled with much less and walked over to the other side. Many others abandoned the cause due to their individual motives. If INA had been supported by the resources of a state and sufficient logistics and arms and continued combat ops as the force of an exiled government, they would have perhaps over time developed into a fine force with the mind and structure of a regular force and absorbed into the Indian army later. That is the kind of support probably that Bose wanted to win from the Russians. But all that now belongs to the realm of could have been. The Indian National Army today is therefore assessed by the Indian Army more as a case of learning than in terms of victory or defeat. One clear victory of INA was of course the after effect of their struggle. The INA trials sparked off massive unrest across the country. The feeling was so strong that congressmen, in spite of themselves, were constrained to provide legal defense for the INA men on trial, engaging some of the top lawyers uh, that time, Bhulabai Desai, Kailashnath Karchu, Satesh Bahadur Sapru, Asaf Ali, and Nehru himself uh, donned the lawyer's gown after many years of giving up practice. The Muslim League also decided to make their own defense council to make hay from the publicity that it drew. Indians strongly identified with the cause INA fought for, which got men in the regular ranks of armed forces thinking about their loyalties. This had a direct bearing in the form of a series of mutinies, beginning with the strike by the ratings, that is uh, sailors and officers of the Royal Indian Navy and Air Force from the ports of Mumbai and Karachi to Madras and Vishakhapatnam and Calcutta in February 1946. The airmen too struck work at various places including Karachi and Kalaikunda in uh, West Bengal and it was clearly this from the words of the British themselves that led to their hasty withdrawal from India who actually had no intention to leave for a long time after the war and wanted to continue milking their prime colony to rebuild a shattered post-war England. There was a strong possibility, as Mujibur Rahman had said, that partition would not have happened at all. At least it might have been possible to keep the Muslim majority regions within an Indian confederacy. It needed a leader who had the vision to take the divergent and hostile factions together who commanded the respect of most denominations so as to reduce the Muslim League to a fringe element. There was only one man in India that time who had this kind of charisma and that was Subhash Chandra Bose.